Well, welcome. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Ecclesiastes 7, looking at the last half of that chapter. A little bit of self-evaluation. Would you say that you are growing, progressing in your character? Let's say five years. The last five years, has there been a discernible growth in your love for others? Joy in general. Peace. Patience. Self-control. Things like that. The fruit of the Spirit. You see yourself progressing. Do you, do you find yourself in a continual process of transformation that you can tell is something that God is doing in your life? That's what God wants for us, we understand. Today in our passage, we encounter Solomon with some sad skepticism, really, about character. And he seems to be describing with concern the lack of people who really care about character. Uh, The way he goes about it is in a series of proverbs that seem to be connected one to the other, if we can follow that uh, connection. The, the, The verses 16 through 22 seem to be focusing on true wisdom of knowing our internal character because God sure does. God sees it all. So do we have a sense of our internal character that in some way is accurate and reflects that which God sees and God knows about? That's the beginning is just simply the diagnosis, if you will, of us knowing who are we in terms of our character? Where are we? What are the issues that are going on internally? The the, uh, some of the Proverbs here are quite puzzling, and and few could be more puzzling than the first one in verse 16. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked, and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? At first, verse 16 kind of sounds like we should settle for like a C-minus in righteousness and a if you see straight C in, in wisdom, and we're going to be just all right, okay? But I don't think he means that. For one thing, he would be contradicting himself with everything else he has taught us in the book of Proverbs, where he is exalting wisdom. He's, and he, he is a, the biggest proponent of, of righteousness and godliness. So he surely can't be saying that. What is he saying? I believe what he is saying is to avoid self-righteousness. And to avoid a a fake wisdom where we fool ourselves because we think we're so smart. In fact, if we were to hear Solomon audibly speak, verse 16, I wonder if he'd say it with some cynicism like this. Don't be so righteous. Don't be so wise, as in don't claim to be or don't 
act like you're so righteous. He's, he's kind of like addressing, I think, the, the Pharisee issue that Jesus was always a talking, talking about in the New Testament when they had this self-righteous, this puffed-up view of their own righteousness and how smart they were. And it is our temptation because we, we care so much about what people think about us, right? We care about appearances. We, we uh, are, are desperate to maintain, if you will, a reputation. And sometimes that happens at the cost of what's going on inside gets ugly and uglier in terms of what God himself sees. We can really fool ourselves. So don't be so self-righteous. Don't be so self-wise. Why destroy yourself? Perhaps saying, it's really tiring to pretend on and on. It, it, this, you're, going to, you're going to wear yourself out pretending to be righteous and wise if it's just about putting on appearance. So it could just be this sense of, you're going to be miserable why destroy yourself in that way? I think we all understand that there are sins that are ex- external and obvious to others, and there are sins that are internal that, that no one would really know about. Ten Commandments tend to address external sins. Thou shalt not you know, commit murder, commit adultery, uh, bear false witness, lying, and so forth. But, but if you think about those external sins, they are fueled first by internal sense because what makes somebody murder or commit adultery or or what those things are hate and lust and and pride and jealousy i want that so i steal it but what about what if we're pretty good at managing our external sins what if the issue for us more is the internal bitterness and we don't really show it but but there's lust and there's arrogance and there's jealousy and there's hatred and there's there's greed and this stuff is all churning within us. It will poison our souls and it will leak into our relationships and it will affect us and those around us no matter how well we do at squelching what others might know about us. Verse 17 then says, don't be over wicked and don't be a fool why die before your time? So it's kind of, instead of the person who's pretending to be righteous, now it's like he, he flips over to the person who is like maybe given up. Maybe, maybe is so sick of the hypocrites that are putting on airs and, and trying to be, uh, appear righteous. This is the person that says, forget it all. Uh, I'm just going to do what I want to do, and I don't care what God thinks. I don't care what anybody thinks. What happens if you abandon that? It says, don't, why die before your time? Because just going into wickedness, sin, is, is foolhardy and very dangerous, frankly, physically. The external sins lead to uh, yeah, drug overdoses or risks of being caught as a criminal or drunken driving, whatever it might be. But really, all sin has consequences, and we would say the same of internal sins, if we're honest. The internal, more hidden sins create an inner turmoil, and if, if we just let bitterness grow, if we just let jealousy keep churning, 
I'm convinced it probably shortens our life as well. It, it, it creates a certain, our emotions affects our, 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 our physical life, the turmoil and the, the it can affect our, our, our addictions and other things that actually are dangerous and life threatening. But so don't fake it. Trying to be self righteous and self wise and, and don't go the other extreme. We are in desperate need of true righteousness and true wisdom. I believe that's what verse 18 is telling us. Now, uh, verse 18 is another difficult uh, set of phrases to understand in the Hebrew language. And so I think mine is a little, the the last line of mine is a little bit misleading. So I'm going to put on the screen uh, from the New American Standard Bible that I think is expressing verse 18 very well. It is good that you grasp one thing while not letting go of the other, for one who fears God comes out with both of them. Now, in context, what's he been talking about? He's been talking about wisdom and righteousness. So don't pretend to be wise and righteous, and it's not true. Don't abandon wisdom and righteousness. That's dangerous. Rather, you need to cling to both of them. It's good to grasp one while not letting go of the other. You need righteousness and you, you need wisdom. And it's the person who fears God who's going to end up with actual righteousness and actual wisdom. So, in a sense, this is the main point at the front porch of this passage because it's telling us this is what you need to fear God. To fear God, to, to fear God is to, to honor Him, to worship Him. Maybe the most crucial part of fearing God is to submit to Him. The person who fears God will grow true righteousness and true wisdom. As Solomon also wrote in Proverbs 9 verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom. In other words, as you put yourself under the authority of God, that's when you start to realize Oh, that's the right thing to do. That I, I now have wisdom because I know this is what God wants. So Solomon here, I think, is simply agreeing with things he said like that in the other book he wrote of Proverbs. So is the fear of God, is submission to God your single focus in life? That's what it's calling us to. To put ourselves under the authority of God that we would honor Him, that we would worship Him, that we would revere Him, whichever term you use. But it's saying, God, I am drawn by my flesh to do this and that, to fake it or to go to excess. or We are going to be going every direction but right unless we singularly focus on drawing ourselves under the authority of God. We get the authority of God through His Word. So how does that, how does that uh, affect different areas of life? It changes our relationships. It changes our relationships with one another when we see ourselves under the authority of God. Because in every relationship, and I'm thinking now of core, closer relationships, we're going to rub each other wrong. And so there is going to be either conflict or potential of conflict. There's going to be uh, times where we have, have disagreement or we have hurt or we've been slighted. How are we going to respond to those things. The way you relate to God will always affect the way you relate 
to others around you. And so if you, as you face the relational challenges, which is like the definition of relationships, when you face those, do you bring yourself before God and say, God, help me to have the right attitude in our character first. Because I will never know what to do. I will never know what to say unless, first of all, I've put myself, it's me and God now, it's me and God, and I'm asking him for wisdom. How do I relate to this person? What would be loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, self-controlled? It transforms our relationships. Uh, second, relationships, another area would be money. We earn money, we spend money, we save money, we give money. What does it mean if you, if you, if you fear the Lord, if you, if you have a submission to God, then we're going to see everything we do financially as being a God thing. Everything is spiritual, money is spiritual, relationships are spiritual. And so time is spiritual. So we see ourselves as stewards of the money that God gives us. So we ask him for wisdom. Again, we go before him and say, God, this is your money. You, you have allotted this much to me, so how, how, how do you want me to spend it, save it, give it? Do we draw ourselves under alignment before God? Fear God. This inner trait is the core issue. The one who fears God will actually have wisdom and righteousness. He goes on in verse 19 to say how important wisdom is. Wisdom makes one wise man more powerful than ten rulers in a city. So if you are pursuing wisdom and grow in wisdom so that in the five-year plan you see that you now have more stability, more wisdom, more insight that is God-directed, you will have more power than ten rulers of a city. What is that saying? Power is influence. Influence is power you will have influence more than 10 rulers. So uh, rulers are people with positions. And it's saying that wisdom, not position, creates influence. So whether someone is a, a boss at work or a political uh, position or your child's coach or professors or the, or the bloggers or author that your, your friend uh, reads... They have positions, but you might have more influence in their life. And so as you think about the people that you want to have a positive influence, if you are seeking God, if you, are, if you have put yourself under alignment under God's authority, what do you want for them? You want the same for them. How do you communicate? How do you have that influence? If you have wisdom, you will have influence more than... All of their exposure to so-called experts. That doesn't mean they're going to follow you. They still are going to have their choices to be wise or righteous or self-righteous or self-wise. But you can live an example of wisdom. Wisdom makes one man, makes one wise man more powerful than ten rulers in a city. Where do you get wisdom? Fearing God. So he's calling us to this godly wisdom he next addresses the issue of righteousness remember those are the two things wisdom and righteousness i believe this is addressed at the self-righteous verse 20 it's kind of in your face this is there is not a righteous man on the earth who does what is right and never sins it's kind of like a 
Duh, that's an obvious thing. And yet it's not an obvious thing to the self-righteous person because they just don't spend any time in front of any kind of spiritual mirror. They are not looking at themselves. They look at others. And they only care about what people see in them. They don't, they don't, they don't look in the mirror. And so he's making the point that wake up and realize you're not so righteous. Uh, we become so accustomed sometimes to doing the right thing in terms of appearance that we have lost sight of what internal decay there could be. External sins and internal sins. Do you real, we realize there's both. The, in the story of the prodigal, we talk about the prodigal son, but really there, it's a story of two sons, if you read it carefully. The prodigal son asks his father for his inheritance early. He's still living. And he grants it. And he goes off and he spends it all, wastes it all. And then he's in deep trouble. And he ends up coming back and his father welcomes him back. In fact, throws a party for him. Enter the second son. He's furious. He's furious because he's been doing everything right and righteous. And he's jealous of the attention that his brother's getting. Jealous of the party that he never got. The major point of the parable is, first of all, it points to God as the one who shows grace to sinners who repent. The prodigal did that. But the sidebar of the story is directed to the other son, the self-righteous son, because if you go back to Luke 15 where you find this parable, it's actually told to the Pharisees. Chapter 15, verse 1 of Luke. They are the second son. So the, so the prodigal son is the example of external sin. It was obvious, wild, unrighteous living, but... The other son is the one guilty of internal sins of jealousy, resentment, hatred, pride, self-righteousness. Which son enjoyed the father's love and mercy? Surprisingly, maybe, as he told the story, it was the one who had the external sins because he repented. And which one did not enjoy and experience the Father's grace and mercy. It's the one who hung on to the inner sins. And so while the prodigal sons were greater, you could say externally, his sins were greater, actually it was the one with the inner sins that had the greater spiritual problem because he couldn't see it, didn't know it, and would continue to live that way. So are we aware of our inner Sins. Is that the, as we think about worshiping, honoring, submitting, fearing God, are we focused on like the things we do that others would see? We're only looking at the fringe. We aren't even looking at the core of the problem. The next two verses, after describing wisdom and righteousness, now calls to attention our tendency to judge one another. Okay, now we're 
kind of not instead of it, it's it he, in fact it puts us on both sides others judging us and us judging others do not pay attention verse 21 do not pay attention to every word people say <laughs> that's a good that you put that on a plaque or you may hear your servant cursing you for you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others it's almost kind of like a little bit of a humor there that don't listen too carefully to critics you should ignore your critics ignore those who judge you because you also judge others the idea of a servant is that there's someone who's on your side and yet they've probably criticized you If you've heard every, if you if you had the ability to hear everything that even your very best friends have ever said about you, do you think you'd be appalled? Kind of scary. And the reason we kind of know that is because even the people that we love, we've said some pretty critical things about too, right? If we really knew those things. You know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. We're all guilty. We're all naturally critical, natural, naturally judgmental, natural hypocrites. Psalm 64, 2. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. And aren't we so capable of being able to carry on a conversation while at the same time it's the very person we have been harboring bitterness towards? Or... Jesus in Matthew 12, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I tell you on the day of judgment, when people, people will give account for every careless word they speak. That should be a bit frightening. Ever find yourself saying, oh, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that. When what we really should say honestly is, I'm sorry, I didn't want you to hear that. The fact is, out of the abundance of the heart, it is what we were thinking, and that's why we said it. The observation of verse 21 and 22 is that we tend to tell others what is in our heart about somebody else. Gossip. The danger of gossip, it leaks out. If you glance ahead, just a couple of chapters. Chapter 10, verse 20. Do not revile the king even in your thoughts or curse the rich in your bedroom. Meaning, you know, you think it's very private. Because a bird of the air may carry your words and a bird on the wing may report what you say. It's a kind of a a humorous metaphor of the fact that you think you didn't really hard to tell anybody. You may have just told this one person. It's amazing how it gets around that what you said bad about them gets to the person and they find out so there's the danger have have you ever had somebody pocket dial you and suddenly you can hear everything they're saying someplace in a house someplace Solomon would say hang up fast because you might hear something about yourself that you don't really want to hear. How do you avoid saying wrong things about others? 
This is an external thing, isn't it? This is an external sin. It starts with how you think about them. And unless we experience a revival, a transformation of how we think about people, we will never be able to control what we say about people because out of the abundance of the heart, we will eventually speak. And what's basically going, <clears throat> what's basically going on when we say something negative about somebody is we think negative about somebody. If we're thinking negative about somebody, what we're really doing is saying, I am superior to this person. Because I have the ability to assess how bad they are, therefore, I am superior to them. I was, I was, I was in a rereading part of a book this past week, and uh, he was describing two different ways you could view a mass of people on a sidewalk. You can, you can view them from the horizontal, first of all. And, uh, okay, so I'm a little bit taller, so if I'm looking across a bunch of people, I'm actually, you know, six to ten inches taller than a lot of people, and I could consider myself tall. But you know what the other view is? It's a bird's eye view, the drone view. And all of that disappears. So are we looking at people like, hey, I'm six inches better than this person on a certain trait? Who has the bird's eye drone view but God? Because what God sees is we are all sinners. And we are all desperately in need of his grace. And so we have to be thinking not about this view of one another. We can always find a trait that we're better at than somebody. But rather, how does God see us? When we curse, criticize, judge, gossip, we are claiming the right to measure how bad someone is. And we have taken that from God as if we are God. We are making ourselves God when we do so. True wisdom is to know our internal character and to see ourselves in the spiritual mirror as God sees us. First, that's true wisdom. The rest of this chapter seems to be explaining then what is true godliness. And basically what he says is, it's very rare. Very rare. So, in verses 23 to 25, Solomon makes a kind of a remarkable admission that though he is the wisest man ever, he had come to the end of his wisdom trying to figure out this stuff. All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever wisdom may be, it is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? At this point, verses 23 and 4, he seems to be, this seems to be referring what has come before. So he said, I've been been scratching my head. You know, why is there seemingly this endless sense of, of, of false righteousness and judging of one another. I just, I just cannot really figure that all out. But give credit to Solomon for this. He was wise enough to know kind of what he didn't know. And in verse 25, he, he, he looks forward ahead then to what follows. Here's what he did know. 
So I turned my mind to understand, to investigate and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things and to understand, here it is, the stupidity of wickedness. That's how my translation reads. The stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. Though in a sense he's admitting, I don't really know why it so, seems to be so, we're so hopelessly uh, judgmental and, and fake in, in, our, in our righteousness. I do know this. There's a, there's, a title, there's a book by this title, Sin Makes You Stupid. He says, I know that. To understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. To begin with, the prodigal son was that person. He, till he came to his senses, but he, it made sense to him. If I could have all this money now, then I could do all this stuff, and then I'd be happy. And, of course, then it ran out as he ran out of money and friends. It's not just the prodigal. It's not just the classic bad guy. But the stories of Scripture, the history of Scripture, point out the foolish sin by many who knew God. This is, this is where we have to take this to heart. I'm just going to go through a few examples. Adam and Eve had everything their hearts desired, everything that their, their bodies would need. They had all the provisions. And think about this. They had an unobstructed relationship with God. Wouldn't that be amazing? To talk with him in the cool of the garden, to have these direct conversations with God. And yet all it took was, was for a snake to, to describe a tasty fruit they didn't have. And they fell. Foolish, foolish. And they paid the price and expelled from the garden. Achan, I was recently reading in Joshua chapter 6 is when they, they go march, Israelites march around the walls of Jericho and the walls of Jericho fall down. But God had said, when it falls, this was the first city as they conquered Canaan, do not take any of the valuables for yourself. They are, they are devoted to God in judgment. Just burn it all. One man, Achan, took a valuable Babylonian garment, some silver coins and a bar of gold, and hid them, thinking he could hide them from God. And it created judgment on all of his people. Our sin usually affects others. And many soldiers died the next battle, and then God eventually judged. And they, he and his family were judged foolish. Samson, gifted by God with a true superpower, supernatural strength any any man could could wish to achieve he killed a lion with his bare hands the philistines tried to to imprison him in a city and he goes to the the large iron city gates and picks them up and tosses them on a hill that's how he got out just picked them up his downfall was a pretty unbelieving philistine woman and through a series of conversations, he eventually told her the secret that God said not to tell anybody of his strength. She cut his hair, and they captured him. He lost his strength. Foolish, and he paid the price. 
David. You guys, David had a, 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 a truly good, wise, and beautiful wife named Abigail, First Samuel 25. But in his momentary lust for Bathsheba, he sinned, first of all, internally, lust, but because of his power as king and his loss of wisdom, he took advantage of her. She becomes pregnant. He tries to cover it up. He commits murder. The impact throughout his family is like the last half of Second Samuel. Godly David, the one who wrote our Psalms. Ananias and Sapphira. Acts 5. They were Christians during one of the most exciting times. The church was new. The Holy Spirit was at work. Church was growing. People were being saved. And people were giving generously and giving big generous gifts. And they saw how much attention the generous givers got. And so they went and sold a piece of land. And they brought it and said, we're giving this land. Is that all? You're giving the whole land? Yes. This all they did was exaggerate what they had given to say they gave it all. And they didn't. They lied. And how foolish. And in that early day of the church, God struck them dead. The foolishness of sin, the stupidity of wickedness. Verse 19. Could it be that Someone listening to this is on the brink of doing something very spiritually stupid. Is the Holy Spirit speaking to you of some external choice because you have already nurtured something internally? The poison is there. It's time to say no. Inner sin is always filled with lies that Satan wants us to believe. This will make you happy is classic. This will make people respect you. This is small. You'll get by with it. It doesn't matter. It's hidden. It'll be fun, they said. God's word says, understand the stupidity of wickedness. Numbers 32, be sure your sin will find you out. You maybe heard that one. James 1, sin when it's run its course brings forth death. Whatever person sows this he will also reap. Galatians 6, 7. Fear of the Lord is to bring yourself under submission to him. To where it doesn't just change that external skin of our life but it penetrates to the inner core. Verse 26, Solomon addresses men like himself who succumb to one of the most obvious forms of temptation. I find much more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap and whose hands are chains. But here's the good news. The man who pleases God will escape her. But the sinner she will ensnare. Samson had his Delilah. And uh, uh, David, as we said, had Bathsheba. Solomon had 700 wives and any mistress he wanted. But the man who pleases God will escape her. She is now 
available on every screen. Don't have to even describe the, the, the availability of lust. We get it. But the man who pleases God will escape her. The fear of being caught will never keep us safe. Only the desire to please God will keep us safe from the inner sin of lust or, God forbid, the external sin it often becomes. Either one destroys the soul, our soulmates, our marriages, and our families. But the man who pleases God can escape. Do we see how vital it is that we become the one who fears God, not fears being caught, fears God? So what attention are we paying to nourishing that relationship with God? Because that's where it all starts, that as we grow a relationship through prayer and through God's word, We develop a relationship with God that becomes so precious and so normal that as we daily are drawing ourselves into that connection, we we develop an appetite for pleasing God that will sustain us throughout a day when our fleshly appetites will tempt us in every way. But it's as we address the inner core Character, the man who pleases God. If you were to highlight two parts of our passage today, it would be verse 18, the man who fears God, or verse 26, the man who pleases God. This is, this is, this is where he's drawing our attention. This is, this is the only solution. Verses 27 and 28, Solomon bemoans the fact that there are so few, so rare to find godly men or women. Now I'm going to read these verses and you'll notice that there does seem to be a bit of uh, sexism in it. Uh, we'll talk about it. Verse 27. Look, says the teacher, this is what I have discovered, adding one thing to another, another to discover the scheme of things. While I was searching but not found, finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman above them all. Don't start throwing eggs just yet. I think it is very possibly just a, a, a Hebrew poetic way of saying it's very, very rare. It's about, it, it, it's hyperbole, exaggeration in one sense, because surely there is more than one in a thousand. But if it's one in ten men, are you one of the ten who pleases God? But so, it's so rare. When he says not one woman, surely he knew many. He wrote so well in Proverbs about uh, the wise woman, the virtuous woman, the gracious woman. He, of course, also talked about uh, the contentious woman, the angry woman, or the adulterous woman. But it's Solomon who gave us Proverbs 31, which is describing the woman who fears the Lord. Not surprising. It's the same as the man who fears the Lord. So whatever he meant by the the way he phrased it, either that there were no upright, it possibly meant there's no upright women among those who snare men in the previous verse, 
or it could just be a way of saying men or women, it's rare to find true godliness. But that's what we're here for. That's, that's, why, that's why we make the effort, having come to faith in Christ and realize His incredible grace. That's why it matters to us. That's why we come to His Word. That's why you care about His Word. That's why you're here this morning, this evening, because you care about the Word of God. You care about the fear of the Lord. The last line is uh, more sober realism about our heart. This only, verse 29, this only have I found, God made mankind upright, but men have gone in search of many schemes. There's like many ways we try to get uh, around this call to righteousness. God made man upright. Uh, first of all, this is drawing attention to the fact that God is indeed the one who has created us. He made us. He designed us. He brought us into existence. If he did not, he, he knew that you would be you, and he planned you. But going back to when he began with Adam and Eve, he made us upright. The word is not the word holy, that uh, we are pure and absent of sin like God is. But it probably would refer to Adam's innocence because he didn't create Adam with sin. He created him with free choice, free will. And he did then sin. But Adam and Eve bore the image of God. And sometimes I think we don't take that seriously enough as how powerful that is that man had the ability to do right. But what happened, men have gone out in search of many schemes. Or back in verse 20, there's not a righteous one, not, uh, one who does, not one who does what is right and never sins. So we have a moral compass. God made us that way. We know right and wrong, and so we are created differently than animals. A wolf will eat other creatures because it's a wolf. And that is its nature, and it does not have a moral compass. We did not evolve. We did not evolve from some animal form that didn't know morality into what we are now, The chasm between animal and man is insurmountable because of this issue of understanding right and wrong, because of this issue of bearing the image of God. There was never a day or an age where suddenly a a wolf or a monkey or an ape suddenly caught on to morality and said, I don't think I should murder. (laughs) I don't think I should steal. I don't think I should commit adultery. That is a God thing that he has put within us. But man has gone in search of many schemes. I believe evolution is one of those schemes. To believe that we are simply some kind of advanced animal. And as a result, people pretty much act like it too. And drop all the moral foundations. And whether it's the sanctity of life or an understanding of 
of, of gender or morality or marriage, it all falls if we are simply creatures. Culture is a scheme that again has, has, has tried to transform, satanic lies transforming moral biblical absolutes. But we understand. We, we, we know what inner character is because we have the fear of the Lord. We understand who He is. We bring ourselves under His authority. And because of that, we must live like that. We must pay attention to the inner and to the external sin. In Second Corinthians 7, verse 1, context is about how God has called us into His family. And he's called us children of his. And, and because of these precious promises, he says, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence, that's fear of God. And those two terms are describing external sins. Let us purify ourselves from, yes, the obvious things, the thing that thou shalt not, but not just that, the sins of the spirit. Because that is where we will experience the purity that God wants to give us. Dwight Edwards in his book, Revolution Within, says, God exposes our sin not to make us feel bad, but to make us feel desperate. If God's spoken to us today about sin issues that are inner or external, it wasn't just so we walk out of here and feel bad about ourselves, but that we would feel so desperate for his help. Because it's only through the salvation of the cross that our sins are forgiven. It's only through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that he can give us power over indwelling sin. And so we can be honest. We don't have to be self-righteous. We don't have to pretend. We'll destroy ourselves pretending. We'll wear ourselves out. We can be honest before God and he says, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. And that is the power he wants to work in us. But he works in us from the inside out. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we just want to recommit ourselves to this process of cleansing that you do, sanctification of your spirit. I just want to pray for every man and woman, young person, who hears this, that we might uh, draw ourselves toward you. That we would care more about our inner character, that which no one sees, than what we assume others see. And Lord, that we can trust our reputation when we know that you are at work faithfully in our lives. So I pray for each one as we hear and, and uh, sense your spirit at work in us. You know the areas, you know the steps, you know the transparency we need, you know the resources, you perhaps know the people around us that could be of, of support or help, that we could grow in character, in love and joy and peace and patience and self-control to your glory because you are the one that accomplishes this. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.